This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. This show brought to you by Constellation Media. Episode 9 of the Urban Astronomer Podcast's second season, and I am so glad that we're all back together again. It's been an interesting two weeks while I settle into my new home in the suburbs, where I learned just how expensive prepaid electricity can get, and where I've been patiently waiting to get my fibre installed so that I can have a proper, real, reliable internet connection for the first time in over seven years. One of the frustrations of rural life was a real lack of options pumping out water from deep underground, connecting to the internet with mobile data and driving for miles and miles across eroded, bumpy dirt roads, watching my car slowly disintegrate beneath me over the years. On the other hand, we had moderately good skies out there. Way more light pollution than one might have expected, thanks to encroaching developments and the ubiquitous sand mines and quarries all over the region with their ultra-bright floodlights burning all night. But also very few trees to block the view of the sky. Here in the comfortable leafy suburbs, I haven't yet figured out how bad the light pollution is because I can't see the sky at all. It's completely hidden behind a canopy of leaves and branches from old trees towering over the houses. I heard somebody once describe Johannesburg as one of the largest forests in southern Africa because of the number of trees planted by the municipality in public spaces and by private citizens in their own yards. I have no idea if that statistic is actually true, but I do know that when you scan over the area in satellite view on your Maps app, It's generally just a sea of green, dotted with roofs and swimming pools, and even many roads are completely concealed. Not good for astronomy, sadly. Still, it's a better life for my kids, who are now in better schools, and I don't have to spend two hours a day just driving them there and fetching them, so it still feels like a net win. And speaking of such generally positive things, I would like to quickly thank my supporters on Patreon, Catherine, Peter, Frank Tippin, and George Palmer, you are all a bunch of legends, and I could not do this without you. And if you listening now would like to be a legend too, it's not that hard to join them. Now, if you heard the last episode, you are probably expecting to hear an interview with Nicole Thomas. Unfortunately, for the second time this season, my recordings of the interview that we made months ago are unusable. If you work for Microsoft and are responsible for Skype then I hate you right now. I made the recording in Skype and I downloaded it from Skype within the 30-day period, but when I tried to import it into this episode, I found it was just an empty file. Now, I've been a loyal user of Skype for over a decade, but it just isn't good enough for me anymore. All of my serious technical problems with interviews have been Skype-related, so I'm moving on and I'm deleting Skype's number from my phone. For the Nicole fans out there, don't worry, she will be back in a future episode. We'll make sure of that. But until we can get that sorted out, I will be substituting in Dr. Tana Joseph for this episode. Tana is an astrophysicist with a special interest in extragalactic X-ray binary star systems. She is also the founder and owner of Astrocom, a STEM consultancy and communications company. I found her very easy to talk to. But unfortunately, the sound quality is not so great. Again, thanks, Skype. So if you'll forgive the tinny, old-style telephone sound, then here is Dr. Tana Joseph. 
Can you tell us your just your name and uh, a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, my name is Tana Joseph. I am an astronomer from Cape Town. And I'm, I studied at the University of Cape Town for my undergraduate honours and master's degrees. And then I went to the University of Southampton in the UK for my PhD. I have worked as, as a researcher at the University of Cape Town and at the South African Astronomical Observatory, um, also in Cape Town. Fun mm -hmm. fact, that's why we have the suburb of observatory in Cape Town. And there's another observatory, I think, somewhere near you as well, up in Gauteng. And they called that because that's where they built observatories. Oh, uh, yes, that's in, that's in Johannesburg, yes. Yep, and there's one in, in Cape fact, Town as well, yeah. Did you know that that observatory there, sorry, uh, I'm supposed to, you're supposed to be talking, not me, but when you mentioned observatory in Joburg, um, the Johannesburg Astronomical Society still meet at that old observatory yep. there. They yep. restored that telescope, um, but they had to restore it themselves because it was abandoned years ago. And when they found it, they found that people were using it to do rave parties all oh. night and <laughs> they had to completely rebuild the whole structure That's just so they could reclaim it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can imagine like... Uh, you know, everything kind of moved down south, like the real research observatories, obviously, um, in, well, the headquarters is in the Western Cape, but the actual telescopes are in the Northern Cape. So, search mm. facilities, they just kind of got left behind. But I'm glad to hear that they've been restored and that there's still an interest in astronomy and that yeah. that's being used for. Um, yes, yeah, so I, after I, was done at SAO, the South African Astronomical Observatory, where I was the outreach astronomer. So it was a very fun job. Um, I moved to Texas for fellowship to West Texas, to Texas Tech University in Lubbock. And then when that fellowship was done, I moved to Manchester um, on a Royal Society Newton International Fellowship. Okay. Okay, that sounds like a... You've, you've traveled. You've seen the world, eh? Yeah. Yeah, I've been... <laughs> Very lucky. Like even during my PhD, um, six months of my PhD in the UK, I actually spent in the US. Um, I had a, a fellowship for six months um, to work at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, which was great. So I got to learn mm -hmm. Boston as well. Um, yeah, so I've, I've been very lucky. And that's without, you know, all the travel for conferences and all that kind of stuff as well. So, so what made you... What what got you into astronomy in the first place? I mean, was this like a, a childhood interest that you always had, or was it something that developed while you were studying, or, or what? Um, it was a childhood interest. So I've always been interested in science from a very young age. Both my parents were um, high school science teachers, and just always was interested in science. And when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched and subsequently fixed. The Cape Times used to print um, what we call Hubble legacy images, so particularly beautiful images that they um, that you know were used for PR purposes. But once they started publishing them in mm. the internet days, so the newspaper was still an important thing, you know, when you stop at the robots and you actually buy a newspaper from a person, it was those days. And um, my father would buy the Cape yeah. Times day and I would see these images when they would be on the front page. And, you know, the classic Hubble legacy, even just like the Horsehead Nebula and the Andromeda Galaxy, you know, those iconic ones where mm -hmm. you see 
even if you don't know astronomy, you've definitely seen those images before somewhere. Um, and I yeah, found yeah. a scrapbook. And so this was about, this was in the mid 90s. I was about 11. And I decided that this was the science that I wanted to do because not only were these beautiful images taken with a space telescope, but they were actually science data sets. And obviously in those days, I didn't know that that's what you would call them, but I knew that these beautiful pictures were being used to do science and to learn about the universe. And I just was so blown away by that because it's, you know, the science is so beautiful, but also so there's so much to learn from these images. And that's when I decided to choose astronomy as my science. Okay. Now that's interesting. That's a good, uh, you know, everyone always has their own different story about this. And some people it was just, they just loved this the space from when they were children sometimes they weren't interested at all until they were at university and discovered that yep so so what is your what what have been, what have been your main research interest then like, like what was your what was your phd about uh, my phd is uh was based on x-ray astronomy so high energy astronomy and particular um i was focusing on binary stars so two stars orbiting each other where one of them is a black hole or a neutron star and mm -hmm. um and these so they they call x-ray binaries they give off a lot of x-ray light um and particularly x-ray binaries outside of our galaxy so there's um yeah there's a big group but most of my colleagues i would say work on these x-ray binaries inside our galaxy but i don't i work on them in yeah in other galaxies um, so the kind of work is slightly different. Where do you get your data from with that? Is, is that all orbital observatories or or can you do X-ray from the ground? You can't do X-ray from the ground. That's about one of the only X-ray and UV, uh, the two pretty much the okay. two um, types of astronomical observations that you can't do from the ground because our atmosphere blocks that all out. Otherwise, we would be in a lot of trouble. We'd get massively irradiated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, okay. So, yeah, so that's all. So X-ray is all space-based. Um, I used the NASA's Chandra Space mm -hmm. Telescope and uh, the European Space Agency's XMM-Newton Telescope are the two main ones that I use for my science. And then I also use... Okay. You, can't, you, know, you can't just be sort of a one-trick pony Anymore, like, oh, yeah, if you want to do your science properly, you look at more than one type of light. So I, so X-ray and radio um, go together really well, and optical. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, that's all ground-based, except for, you know, occasions when I actually make use of Hubble, um, Hubble data. But the radio, so the radio telescopes would be, um, there's the telescope called ATCA in Australia. There's, of course, Meerkat. I just got my first set of Meerkat data. I've just published, a, well, we're just um, in the process of getting a paper out, a peer-reviewed journal article out about um, the latest ASCAP data. So ASCAP is the Australian equivalent of Meerkat. They're the two precursor telescopes, mm -hmm. the SKA, um, mm -hmm. and are the two best radio telescopes, certainly in the Southern Hemisphere, possibly in the world, but the Americans will have something to say about that because they have the very large array. Um, yes. Yeah, I have a wealth of radio data right now. Um, I have this Chandra and XMM data that's publicly available that I'm going to use. And then there's just lots and lots of optical data on these particular galaxies that I'm interested in because they're very nearby. So um, 
How much did you say? So, so what is what, what's so interesting then about these about these these X-ray binaries uh, to you? I mean, or, or what made you choose that? Um, okay, so that's a good question. And um, whenever I give a science talk at a university or at a conference, I always have one slide kind of explaining this, like you know, like an elevator pitch white here about yeah. binaries. So up until the gravitational wave detections that started in 2015, X-ray binaries mm -hmm. are actually the only kind of binary stellar system that you can see um, outside what we call the local group. So the local group is a group of galaxies um, containing our galaxy, the Milky Way, um, the Andromeda galaxy, mm -hmm. and about 50 other smaller galaxies. And they, yeah, so they're like a loose group of galaxies. And if you want to study binary stars or binary stellar systems, how they form, grow, and change over time, how they shape the environment, um, and all of that kind of stuff, you need to study X-ray binaries because the other kind of binaries just aren't luminous enough to be able to see, to be seen, observed um, at greater distances than, oh, let's say, call it one megaparsec. One megaparsec is... 1 million parsecs times 3, about 3 million light years. So if you want to study okay. these sources further than that distance, then you need to study X-ray binaries. And like I said, until 2015, that, those were the only, that, that was really the only way you could study binary stellar systems. Okay. So, so why do you need to see binaries that far away? Is there, I mean, are they likely to be different or is it, yeah. or is so it, what, what is it because they're, they're, they're older or? Yes, so what we have is in the local group, we have galaxies like our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy. So disk, so flattened disk galaxies with spiral arms, we call them spiral galaxies, mm -hmm. and other smaller dwarf galaxies like the large and small Magellanic clouds. And mm -hmm. we know that different types of galaxies have different properties. They have different amounts of um, chemical abundances. Um, with elements like oxygen, silicon, all those kind of things, iron, etc. We know that mm -hmm. they have different populations of stars in them, different types of stars in them. So if you want to get an accurate understanding of how stars evolve and change, what makes them grow, what suppresses their growth, how these um, X-ray binaries, for instance, uh, change the environment because the one of the stars, like I said, is a neutron star or a black hole, which means it must have undergone a supernova explosion. And supernovae are a great way to redistribute elements into heavier elements into the environment. And once you have heavier elements in the environment, you change the kind of stars that can form. So they, um, and then you change kind of what the galaxy looks like, etc. And if you only study the stellar systems in spiral galaxies or in dwarf galaxies, you only get part of the picture. What you need is to be able to study star formation and star growth and binary, um, binary systems in galaxies like um, elliptical galaxies. And you can, mm -hmm. giant elliptical galaxies, the one in particular that I studied for my PhD, it's called NGC 4472. It's a giant elliptical galaxy and it has over 200 X-ray binaries in it. Um, and the environment is very different from a spiral galaxy. So what you do when you build up, when you study these X-ray binaries in different environments, is you build up a picture of, you can compare and contrast X-ray binaries you find in our galaxy, X-ray binaries in 
elliptical galaxies, X-ray binaries in these um, small, well, these big stellar clusters called globular clusters, and those systems are very old. They, mm. you know, um, billions of years old compared to certain parts of our galaxy um, where the stars are much newer. But even within our galaxy, there's mm-hmm. older stars in the center, younger stars further out. So the environment really does play an interesting role. Um, and if we want to get a handle on um, how things, you know, the, how the pictures change from the past of the universe, like in the universe to now, and how chemical enrichment plays a role and all that kind of stuff, then that's something that um, you that you would use X-ray binaries for. So what's nice about these gravitational wave um, observations that we get now with LIGO and Virgo is that they can go even further out. So they are now tracing um, binaries. They're not X-ray binaries, but still binary stellar systems. So two black holes orbiting each other or two neutron stars orbiting each other. Mm-hmm. Much higher, uh, much further distances away when the universe was younger. And then we can start to, again, fall in the picture from far away, getting closer and closer, seeing, you know, we, we're noticing, well, uh, we think that there were heavier stars than can be formed now in the earlier parts of the universe. So we expect to see heavier systems. We expect to see heavier black holes um, than we see in our galaxy, for instance, because the stars were made up of um, of different kinds of elements compared to compared to earlier in the universe. So this is these things are all linked together and we all work together. We come together at conferences and give each other updates um, on these, you know, little parts of the puzzle that we are all putting together in our own research groups. Okay, now that, that's that's actually brilliant. That's interesting stuff. Um, moving on, can you what can you what is Astrocoms? This is this company of yours. So Astrocoms is a company I started. Um, born out of this idea that I feel that there is a lot of um, social um, and economic development that can come out of linking up astronomy, in particular in the case of South Africa and the rest of Africa with the SKA and so on. And if we can just speak to each other and learn to understand each other, we can um, work together to make the world a better place. So, for example... Um, Astrocoms, the sort of strap line is knowledge stems from communication, where stems is the acronym for science, technology, engineering, and maths. Um, and Astrocoms is right. a science and consulting, a science communication and consulting company. So the idea is that with my experience as a researcher, as an astronomer in particular, and my experience as a science communicator and Um, someone who does a lot of public engagement and, you know, um, having been a media liaison as well when I worked at the SAO um, and all that kind of things. If I put those two parts of my career together, that's where Astrocoms came from because I work very hard on trying to translate technical, complicated things that we do in astronomy to, you know, policymakers, teachers, um, the private sector all that kind of stuff. So as a conduit, and one of my first clients was in a more creative sphere. I can't really talk too much about it, but uh, it was, mm-hmm. and I didn't even really anticipate, but um, it was a creative project that required technical input from a scientist 
to help them realize the project and make it make it work. So even in a creative sphere, like for instance, um, that movie Interstellar with the you know with the the black hole image. Uh, yeah, the yes, the science technical um, advisor was a man called Kip Thorne, who won the Nobel Prize along mm-hmm. with people in 2017, was it 2017 or 2016, for their discovery or for their observations of gravitational waves. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. that's the kind of, so he basically put all the science into Interstellar and he's a Nobel Prize winner. And my joke is like, you know, if you have a creative project or any kind of project, but you don't have Hollywood budget money, then that's fine. You can hire me because I'm not going to charge you keep throwing mm-hmm. money. I don't have a Nobel Prize. <laughs> so, I see. Kind of environment or any kind of project or platform that requires technical input or even a sort of a translation service where you want to understand the science, but you you know sometimes it can get very technical and so on. Um, that's where Astrocoms would step in and sort of fill that gap between STEM stakeholders and STEM practitioners and how we can all talk together because there is a lot of societal good, like I said, that can come out of just having a more science literate society and also the opportunities Mm -hmm. that arise out of engaging with science, technology, engineering and maths. So it sounds like you're almost like a consultancy for people who want to be scientifically accurate or have scientific information um, and you can provide that or put them in contact with the relevant experts yes. and help translate it for them. Is, is that right? Because at the moment, I mean, I'm just one person, but the idea is that I have, um, I have obviously contacts and access to other experts in the field, um, you know, engineers, mathematicians. Mm-hmm. Um, people who work in IT and other technology, people who work in data, data science. So if you approach Astrocoms and you ask for a specific, you know, a specific area, say engineering, I can't, depending on what you need, I can't, I could, or I could like, or I could not be able to assist you. But I know lots of engineers that I've met through my studies who are my close friends and they would then come on in a freelance role and they would then Astrocoms help you with your um yeah with tackling your problem so that's the that's the sort of idea just putting people in contact with the yeah with the relevant experts or doing the science communication or whatever the case may be myself and that includes things like managing social media accounts um which is something i did when i was the um, outreach officer at sao um writing press releases uh, being a media liaison um giving even things as basic as giving school talks, which is a big part of our Astrocom's sort of pro bono work would be that we don't charge to give talks at any state-funded schools. So if you approach us, you know, we'd like you to come give a 30-minute talk to the grade 11s about, you know, about science because they're thinking about, you know, next year they're matric and they need to think about careers or something like that then that's the kind of thing mm. you do pro bono because it's a state-funded school. Okay. Do you operate in South Africa or the UK or, or where? I, well, since I'm based in the UK, um, I would do, if, if I was requested to come to a school, it would be like a Skype thing um, or I would let, I let people know when I'm going to be in Cape Town um, or when I'm going to be in South Africa. And I try to accommodate that as much as possible. And often it has okay. Skype 
thing like we're doing right now. Um, but I mean, this mm. job that I have is not a permanent position. There's only nine months left on this fellowship. Um, so I might end up closer to home within the next year or so, depending on what happens um, mm. on the side or back in South Africa. But, you know, like I said as well, if they need someone physically to be there at the school and talk to people, and I can't do that, um, I have plenty of colleagues who can, who I can, you know, reach out to and deputize to go and do that, who are also skilled communicators. And that's, yeah, that's sort of the, the great thing about being in an academic environment where you get to travel the world and move around a lot. You build up contacts and you work with people who, uh, if you can't be there, they will be there. So that's that's really nice about sort of okay. utilizing this international network of um, of scientists and other STEM practitioners that I have. Okay, so it's basically a global business, but just wherever you are, you can yeah. or wherever you know people. And it's, um, oh, okay, now that's that's cool. In South Africa, so I pay tax in South Africa, so I guess you in that okay. way. Saul <laughs> has my money. <laughs> No, that is excellent. That is, you know, when, when I first read it, um, skimmed over the website, I, I thought it was more of a, like a development thing. And I was going to ask if you have any connections with OAD, you know, um, um, the Office of Astronomy Development. But uh, I, yeah, I suppose I it's a bit more off to the side for them. I actually applied for a job there. And um, Vanessa McBride, the outreach astronomer, is my main collaborator in South Africa. She hired me after my PhD. She was my first boss. So I know Vanessa, okay. Kevin, Kevin has known me since I was a student and he was actually the one that encouraged me to apply for the scholarship that allowed me to study in the UK. So Kevin and Vanessa have known me for very long, well, we've known each other for a very long time. And I okay. have Kevin Govender. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so okay. I, well, I know the OAD um, staff very well and I am in close contact with them on not necessarily in Astrocom's capacity, if that did come up then obviously I'd be more than happy to work with him. But they, yeah, we know each other in a more research capacity and we're all friends together. So yeah, I do mm. know very well. Okay. I actually met Vanessa once at, uh, an, at Astronomical Society of South Africa Symposium a couple of years back. We didn't talk much, but uh, you know, I, I was, her work was very interesting that, that she presented on. Yeah, they're doing very cool work. And they've just opened a, well, last year they opened a... Um, European OAD regional office. Okay. So, well, yeah, so they're still working on opening more offices and, you know, covering the globe. Mm. I actually approached them a couple of years ago to find this podcast and they, they said no. But, uh, <laughs> but, but the reasons made a lot of sense, actually, because they, they were looking to, uh, the, the biggest question was, how, how are you going to get this to, you know, to poor people, which is most of the people who most need their work. Yeah, and I didn't have an answer for them because you know that needs bandwidth and uh, to download an episode, and that's that's expensive in South Africa. So yeah. uh, even I had to make another plan. But yeah, yeah, even if you could say, oh, you know, lots of South Africans have phones, data for some reason in South Africa is just shockingly expensive. Yeah, yeah, I've actually come up with an idea for that, but I'm not going to go plugging my own stuff right now. But uh, oh, that's, that's for the future. <laughs> on that, that sounds great. Hmm. Uh, okay, so so anyway, uh, what's next? Oh yeah, uh, I usually close off with asking a basic question like this, um, which is if somebody came to you and they were looking to, they wanted to become a research astronomer or get into science communication like you're doing, 
how would you steer them? What, what would you tell them? Um, well, those two things are kind of... Oh, they're very different, but yeah. <laughs> different, but they, it depends on what they want to, you know, focus on. Because you don't need a PhD to be a science communicator. You can have mm-hmm. a, an undergrad in science, an undergraduate degree in science, as long as you're passionate about it. And, um, you know, and I would point out to them that with the advent of the internet and social media, being a science communicator is easier than ever. And it's often very frustrating to me when, when colleagues um, of mine say things like, oh, no, I'm, I, I'm a terrible public speaker. I, I can't do outreach because um, I believe that. And I don't know where this quote is from, but, you know, in the science communication um, arena, we say the science isn't done until it's communicated. And I personally believe that, you know, our funding comes from taxpayers' money. So if a person on the street was a taxpayer, if you buy anything, you pay VAT on it, then you're a taxpayer, even if you don't necessarily pay income tax. I have to be accountable and transparent about, you know, the work that we do. So if someone stops you and asks me, South Africa is a poor country, we have, you know, a lot of social challenges and, um, you know, we have an HIV AIDS epidemic, why are we wasting money on building telescopes? I have to have answers for that. So this is why it's very important. If you go into science communication, you go in with, you know, with an open mind and, you know, be willing to actually learn from what people want to hear and not just it's this science communication isn't just a one way street, um, you know, so it's a, it's a dialogue and you have to be very open to that. Um, and back to sort of my point about it being easier than ever. It's not just about standing in, like on a stage and, you know, regurgitating your science. You can have, a, you can write blog posts, you can host Ask Me Anything events on social media, and there's different kinds of social media. Twitter is not for everyone. Um, in fact, today is my Twitter anniversary. I've been on Twitter for a year, but I was very, very active on Facebook for many years. Um, running various social media accounts for organizations and my own personal account. And in fact, I just got verified recently by the National Research Foundation. I got a notification saying that I am one of the the biggest supporters and one of the people that, um, you know, interacts with them and disseminates their information the most on Facebook. And so I got to click a button and now I'm some kind of verified person (laughs) in our And that's just in my own spare time. I don't get paid to do it, but it's something that's close to my heart and important for me. And that's also, like I said, a service that I offer in Astrocoms. And in fact, the University of Manchester has also reached out to me um, on the Twitter side saying, they're saying we see that you promote a lot of science and especially equity, diversity and inclusion stuff in science. Mm. Um, And we would like to bring you on board as one of our social media um, promoters. So my efforts are being recognized, which is good, but it just, it's, that's the kind of thing you need to be open to other opportunities, like opportunities and not necessarily just pushing your own agenda, but just letting as many people as possible know whether it's blog posts, whether it's a TED talk, whether it's a LinkedIn article, um, all these kind of things. There's, there are, or starting your own podcast. There's a lot of opportunity to get into science communication, find your niche, find something that you're the most comfortable with or, you know, play to your strengths and get involved with that and mm-hmm. um, reach out to the community of science communications um, experts or enthusiasts 
and you know team up and see what else is out there and there's always a gap in the market there's always going to be some um some community or some group of people that isn't being reached that you should look into for instance i have started i've made it um a significant effort on twitter to follow um indigenous astronomy accounts and indigenous astronomers and that's not just um in fact there aren't many south african indigenous astronomy accounts but there are quite a few now um aboriginal astronomy accounts or science accounts uh, because indigenous knowledge systems are now finally getting starting to get recognition and that's something that i know very little about and i'm very keen to get involved in that and learn more about non-western knowledge systems especially in terms of astronomy so there's always a gap to learn more in terms mm-hmm. of a research career that's a bit i suppose more straightforward in that it's not as new in terms of like you know starting like getting from a to b so you would start with a bsc some kind of science degree um if you're talking about astronomy specifically it would be a physics degree or an or an astronomy and physics degree a, a double major you can also add in you know there are people that do um applied maths maybe or maths with um with physics or something um and then yeah you just follow that all the way through to um honors your masters your phd um there's someone in south africa that has two phd's one's in one is in astronomy and one is in statistics um so that's a sort of quite a well trodden path but i always say to people look it takes a long time i went to university for 10 years but you can exit at any point if you decide after your bsc that you're done then you're done um if you decide after your masters that you want to finish up then you finish up and mm-hmm. what about our perceptions are starting to change now um about what science can bring in terms of say for instance contributing to the economy is there all these jobs that didn't exist 10 years ago like data scientists and you know tech startups are, are often started by people with an academic background or people who got half a phd and decided it's not for them they'd rather go start their own company and make money these people are hiring scientists or people or people with some kind of science background and slowly but surely more traditional corporates are starting to wake up to the idea of hiring people with science backgrounds because they've always hired engineers but they've never hired scientists and that is starting to change a little but it's moving quite slowly but it is happening okay yeah that's that's encouraging that's very good to hear yeah because the idea is that you know especially for instance with the with the SKA now pumping lots of money into getting people into astronomy and getting degrees and so on we can't all stay in academia that it's just not sustainable so the idea is that we will go out into other industries but like teaching banking it or start your own company um and enrich the economy in that way well thank you very much that's very interesting and um actually i'd like to thank you for your time because i think we've uh, we're starting to run out of time um before we go um i usually ask people if they if they have any contact details they'd like to share or if so people can get hold of them Um yeah if you want to get in contact um with me via astrocoms is probably the best way to do it you can find us on twitter at astro_coms with two m's um you can email me 
at Tana, that's T-A-N-A, at astrocoms.com. Um, you can check out our website, astrocoms.com. Um, yeah, so those would be the best ways to get in contact if you just want to know more about what we do or what I do um, or, yeah, what the company can do for you. Those are probably the, the easiest ways to contact me. Mm. Okay, we'll, and we'll put links to those in the show notes. Brilliant, thank you. That was Dr. Tana Joseph. If you'd like to contact her or if you would like to use Astrocom to help you effectively communicate your science or technology to a different audience, you'll find her contact details on the show notes page. And if you've enjoyed this interview, then I would like you to consider playing it for a friend. If they like it, show them how to subscribe to the podcast. You can also leave a review on whichever podcast directory you used to find it. Now, if you're going through all that trouble, I'd really like to ask for your support. While I'm still keeping costs way down by using free software and doing all the work myself, it does still cost a bit to host the show. If you've got some spare cash and would like to make a donation, I have a Patreon account which lets you pledge small monthly donations. You can also make big ones if you want. I won't stop you. There are Patreon links all over the show's website at www.urban-astronomer.com. But however you feel about the show, I would love to hear from you. Just mail me at podcast at urban-astronomer.com or tweet me at uastronomer. Or you can join the conversation at the Urban Astronomer Group on Flick, a new podcast-focused social media app which you can download for free onto your device. If you can't find it, just click the icon on the sidebar of urban-astronomer.com and use the join code urbanastronomer. I hope to see you there. Anyway, that's all we have time for today. Next week's episode is another of our patented science explainy bits, where I will be talking about guns in space and the literal hell that is the surface of Venus. It drops on the 5th of November, and I hope you'll be there. Until then, though, my name is Alan Fassfeldt. You've been listening to the Urban Astronomer podcast, and I hope you have the clearest of skies. Goodbye. <laughs>